0: was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go? The 602 Club. You know it? <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl.
2: Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard?
0: Just answer the questions, please.
2: You show it to your husband.
0: He likes it so much, he hangs it on your bedroom wall.
2: I wouldn't let him. Why not? I should be in there for him. One more question.
0: You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. The entree consists of boiled dogs.
2: Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel?
0: Thank you. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced took more than a hundred for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began
2: to recognize in them a strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions, and consequently we can control them better.
0: Memories. You're talking about memories.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club Trek FM's General Geek Show. I'm just so excited to be here. We have a fantastic show for you tonight, uh, today, tomorrow, whenever you're listening. Uh, Maybe you're listening in the past somehow. I don't know how that's possible, but... Welcome to the show. Uh, and uh, we've got a kind of a double feature going to be happening for the next two weeks. Uh, we're going to be talking about the original Blade Runner tonight. And the next week we'll be talking about Blade Runner 2049. So I'm very excited to do that. I'm also excited to know what the future is going to look like and. 2019, I mean, it's really nice, you know, I know exactly what to look forward to, so uh, with me, I've got some fantastic people to talk about this film with me, Uh, I I needed this gentleman to be here, uh, film aficionado, Mike Schindler.
2: Hey, how's it going? I'm not sure I'd go so far as to...
1: Oh, Mike, Mike, come on, you're just being (laughs) polite now, I mean, you know more about film than I'll know, like, in my entire lifetime, so...
2: I don't know
1: about that. But I am glad you're here because uh, there's some really cool stuff to get to talk about with the idea of, you know, different versions of this film and stuff. So, Uh, and I'm so glad to have her back. The one and only Alice Baker. Welcome back to the 602 Club. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yes, yes. I I would, you know what? Uh, I think you're our costume aficionado. (laughs) <laughs> um, because you you always bring up good comments about the the costumes, and you always mention something. Yeah, oh, we should talk about those, didn't? So, uh, this is this is going to be great. So, um, classic 80s styling here for us to talk about. Well, before we dive into the show, just a quick reminder. Of course, you know you can find uh, all the shows we do here on Truck FM all over the place, but the main place to go is to Apple Podcasts. Um, we have every single show we're doing there. Uh, we also have been covering. Discovery out the wazoo. So make sure you check on all the shows that we're doing on Discovery and, of course, every other part of Star Trek and then, of course, here on the 602 Club. Uh, While you're there, hit us up with a star rating review for the 602 Club. Definitely helps people find the show. And uh, I love hearing what you think. And, you know, if you review us, I will call you out no matter what the rating is and no matter what you said about the show. I'll actually do it. So uh, you can also uh, find us on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, facebook.com slash Trek FM. Facebook is also the place you can find the listeners only discussion group, which is a great place to have a conversation with everybody else listening to uh, Trek FM shows. Uh, now, if you're on Facebook, just type Babel in the search field there. If you go to our website at Trek.FM, which is a great place to visit where you can find all the shows too. You can find all the back catalog, all the different shows we've been doing, you uh, Hit discussion on any of the menu bars. That'll bring you over to the listeners-only discussion group. And last but not least, if you're on that website, hit contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that sends an email to me and any of the hosts that week. So, as I mentioned, going to be talking about Blade Runner. And, Mike, uh, honestly, the first question comes. uh, In fact, before we did this show... A few months back, I messaged a bunch of like you and John Mills and some other people. And I was like, OK, we're doing Blade Runner. Which version do we watch? Mike, why are there so many versions of this movie? And I know it's kind of a long story history, but if like you cut down to the chase, like what is the difference between all of these and why should they watch the version that we watch tonight, which is the final cut?
2: Uh, basically the reason why there are so many versions is because uh during the process Ridley Scott got completely screwed over in terms of his vision and since no one knew what to do with this movie the studio uh altered it into something which they thought would be uh more easily consumed by the masses and as a result was much dumber (laughs) and um you know through a series of, uh, rather unusual circumstances, uh, Ridley Scott's original vision for this movie came out, saw the light of day and it mm. got into the sort of like the public, uh, you know, consciousness, consciousness or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, that kind of like started turning the wheels and, and ended up, uh, you know, uh, getting things going and, and, and allowing him to make a director's cut which has then basically been refined over the years because of various uh, other incidents which have occurred or whatever. So, yeah. I mean, there's That's, five different versions on the DVD <laughs> or the
1: Blu-ray. It's fascinating. Um,
2: but, and, and each of those are interesting in their own historical way. But when it comes down to it, aside from minor tweaks, there's basically... The theatrical version and the director's cut and everything else in between is just kind of like variations of one of those or the other. And there's basically three main differences between them, which I'm sure, you know, we can get into, which kind of separate um, one from the other.
1: Yeah, what is uh, what is the main difference between the theatrical cut, the director's cut, and the final cut? With just those three, what are the, the kind of like main standouts? Okay, as far as like the
2: history is concerned, just to explain why there's a director's cut and a final cut, basically, and this goes back to the work print cut, I guess we're, I guess we're just getting into the history now, so that's good. Okay, cool. So the, the work print cut is what they showed to audiences when they were test screening it. Audiences hated it, and because of that, the studio altered it into the theatrical cut. Then, through some weird circumstances, the work print cut was accidentally shown to audiences like 10 years later. And when the audiences saw this, that, they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is what he was originally going to do. And the studio started to exploit that. And that's when Ridley Scott stepped in and said yeah, this at least is something that I was working on, unlike what you released in theaters, but this isn't a director's cut. If you want me to do a director's cut, I need to go back and refine this thing. But at the time, he was working on Thelma and Louise, so he didn't really have the the time to actually do it himself. So the director's cut, which was released, was not actually edited by him himself, but it included the major things which he wanted included. And then like 10 years after that or whatever, in 2007, he was finally able to sit down himself and refine the movie, refine the director's cut into what he considers to be the definitive version of the movie, which is the final cut. And the the fifth cut there is just the theatrical cut as it was released in uh, Europe, which has a couple of more violent scenes which uh, were not originally in in the theatrical cut in America.
1: It's so fascinating because when you were looking at history of filmmaking, especially in this time period, um, you know, this was happening to a lot of filmmakers. And <laughs> You can understand why George Lucas puts in, uh, you know, Vader talking to Lando, you know, like this deal just keeps getting worse on the time, you know, just like, pray I don't alter the deal any farther, you know, like, the studios just didn't know what to do with these visionary filmmakers and their movies, and they kept messing them up. And you can understand why people like Lucas wanted to be big enough so you didn't touch their movies anymore.
2: I don't think anything's really changed. I mean, I think we're... (laughs) We're seeing that over at Lucasfilm right now, you know? Well, so, yeah, that's hey.
1: that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, um, it's interesting that Lucas was able to divorce himself from that. And now Lucasfilm is back in that, but it's because Lucas isn't there anymore. So, um, no, I, I, I wanted to ask you guys, too. Uh, Alice, this is really interesting to me because I wanted to know what your y'all's experiences were with the film. Uh, and so when was the first time that you saw Blade Runner?
0: So I graduated from high school in 1984. So this film came out in my, what, sophomore year in high school. So that was like prime formative years for me. Um, this is, you know, this and Mad Max were the R rated movies that me and all of my friends wanted to go see. Uh, so I saw it, you know, original theatrical release in the movie theater as a, As a, you know, young teenager.
2: What about you, Mike? I I saw it in in high school as well, but this would have been probably like 96. Uh, You know, the director's cut was already out on video, and I rented it from Blockbuster. And, you know, it was one of those things where it's like you're kind of checking all the boxes, whether Mm -hmm. it's Star Wars or Indiana Jones or Aliens or whatever, you know, whatever you haven't seen, you know, filling in the gaps in your geekdom. And uh, Blade Runner is obviously a, a big one. And when that, uh, you know, when I got around to that and watched it, I was like, "Boy, you know, this is this is not what I was expecting. I don't particularly like this."
1: <laughs> it's really funny that you say that because um, I think we have similar experiences. I remember doing the same thing. You know, in the high school years, as I was starting to get more into film, um, you know, I was kind of blessed. I didn't watch a lot of new stuff when I was a kid. I grew up on a lot of old stuff, like my parents. We watched all sorts of old black and white movies, which really cemented my love for cinema. You know, just the, the pure, unadulterated movie. And as I was getting older, I was trying to watch these movies that I may have missed that and I, you know, I was really getting into sci-fi. Star Wars was huge in my life. Obviously Star Trek had been huge in my life and, and I wanted to see those classics. And so I did the same thing, you know, I rented it and I watched it. And I think my reaction was, Oh, this is good, you know, but I mean, I think then I wasn't like, Oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen. This is great. This is amazing. You know, uh, But part of that is, I think, was watching it then, I don't know if I could truly appreciate it just yet, uh, and what's happening. And I do think, you know, the experience of watching it again now as a much older adult, uh, because I probably, it was maybe 20 years ago that I watched this movie, so it's a long time. And it definitely has changed, I think, the way that I view this film. In fact, I was just talking about it with my brother-in-law and my father-in-law at dinner the other night, and even my perception from having watched it to just talking about it was changing. Um, And I was appreciating more and more what Ridley Scott was able to do in this movie. So, you know, it's, it's a really interesting process because anytime for me that a movie is lauded you know you go in with those huge expectations and sometimes especially as you're younger you might feel like they're not met and maybe it just takes you getting older um alice i'm interested for you and your friends uh, did y'all immediately like this movie oh oh yeah i mean it was it was the fishizzle it was the thing
0: that everybody wanted to to see everyone wanted the trench coat everyone wanted to dress like Rachel every I mean it was
1: I mean she's got great hair too
0: yeah I mean she's I mean she's Mildred Pierce that's who she is um but I you know I have nostalgia I, I have that nostalgia problem I think with this film although watching it this time around I did react differently to a few things but I mean, I, I unabashedly love this movie. I unabashedly love the theatrical cut because that's the one that I first saw and I fell in love with. And I've seen this movie a lot of times and it, it, it holds up for me. I still adore it. I absolutely adore it.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I think that you're right in the sense that it, it holds up, especially as a work of film because I feel like that everything that Ridley Scott is able to pull off here. You know, there are parts of it that look dated, but then there are still things in it that I was kind of marveling at. And maybe it's because I'm marveling at that they could do that in 1982. But at the same time, I mean, so much of this movie still looks really good. I feel like part of that in the production design, it kind
0: of helps that... It feels like there are sort of two paths that a lot of production designers will take when when dealing with the future. And I do, you know, the intent was obviously near future here. Is you either go super fantastical and everything sleek and new and shiny and beautiful, or you sort of do the the gritty mixing the past with the mm-hmm. the the future, um, which is obviously the choice that they made here. And it just it, it still feels real even today because it doesn't seem so either super futuristic or super, I don't know, uh, old fashioned. So I I think in terms of the choices they made as production designers help them a lot in terms of not dating the film.
1: Well, it's really good to know that in 2019, there's going to be a lot of rain in LA, you know, so great to know that apparently it will do nothing but rain in LA. Uh, (laughs) Which uh, I just kept laughing at the whole time. I was like, it does not rain this much in L.A. Um, they knew that climate change was coming, you know? Yeah, there just, you go. Like, they they just predicted it, you know? Uh, so uh, one of the, the things that's really fascinating to me, because a lot of the movies in this time period start to touch on this kind of like uh, active creation that we do as humanity, where we create something intelligent and uh here specifically in the story you know we create a a thing that is is intelligent or on the same level as we are but it's more it's stronger it's more physically resilient um it can do things that we can't do as we're trying to colonize parts of space um but then in the end you know we treat them as slaves <laughs> And I just uh, thought that this was so interesting because a lot of uh, this theme kind of runs throughout that period of the 80s when you start seeing like things like Terminator and um, I, I think of the guys who, the, the writers, who the manga writers who created Goes in the Shell, I feel like they're pulling from this kind of stuff. I mean, so I thought that that was a, a really, I don't know, Mike, can you think of a film or Alice, the, a movie that really kind of deals with this specifically thematically of this idea of us creating something like this. You mean that's o- older than the 80s? Well, I yeah, mean I Metropolis. mean Metropolis. Yeah, Metropolis um and maybe um in in some ways uh 2001 with 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 Dave and 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 so right. I, open the yeah.
0: bay doors, yeah. Uh I, I i I'm sure they they because certainly from a literary perspective the the idea of this has you know been around in science fiction mm-hmm. for for quite some time certainly since the quote unquote golden age of science fiction um i I'm not sure that it's been presented in what in such a steam not steampunky but cyberpunky kind of, of right, world right, before right. um but certainly the ideas of you know you know, when, when do we pass from machine to, um, I mean, data or, uh, even where's the, the, the split between emotion and logic, you know, machines are logical. They versus emotional. So then you could even, you know, look to the Vulcans, you know, I mean, I think the idea of, of as you so eloquently put, you know, what makes us human, what is humanity? I think that question of course has been around since we've been around.
1: Well, and that's something that's i, I mean they, they the way they use the replicants is so fascinating because you know there's this rebellion that happens on one of the colonies and the goal then for humanity is to destroy their creation that's trying to rebel against them and that's where the blade runners come from but it really does drive that question of like what is it that makes us who we are and it it was so interesting because watching the movie, we get these implanted memories in the replicants. But then, even if they're implanted memories, don't they still have the ability to make new memories? And, like, what is it? that I mean, I don't know, Mike. That's something I was just like, it, these things are intelligent. They have limited feelings, but they still have feelings. And they're able to, like, make new memories, to learn, to grow. Like... Isn't that kind of like, that seems pretty humanity-ish to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I
2: think that's, you know, one of the reasons why this movie is, you know, taught in philosophy classes around the world and everything like that, because it, it asks those questions, you know, what is life? And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but uh, I, I think that it's, it, it definitely makes you think about uh, that question
1: for sure. It seems as though throughout the film, there is almost this switch between replicant and human. Because as I'm watching the movie, it feels like the replicants in a lot of ways are acting more human than the humans are. And that the creation is actually in some ways acting as the creator should be. And yet it almost feels like in our world, we at this point, we've become so callous to everything. The world is so dark and dreary that we've lost that humanity. And and I thought that was a really. I don't know. I find that really fascinating.
2: I mean, it's true. I mean, that's you know, I think what. Good movies do. I mean, this type of movie. Like, I I was talking to someone about uh, the New Planet of the Apes movie, and they were talking about how good it was. And then they were like, I feel kind of guilty because I was really rooting for the apes against the humans. And I feel bad about that. And I'm like, "Well, no, that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's the whole point that they're trying to make. You know, they're trying to hold up a mirror and, you know, make us look at ourselves and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this, you know, or whatever. And and I think that that this movie definitely does that very effectively.
0: Yeah, I would uh, uh, agree that that's definitely a, a main theme uh, that's running throughout this screenplay. I, I would play devil's advocate a little bit in that you know they're squeezing people's heads off and you know shooting them under tables and you know so there is a and you could say that they're just modeling their human creators if you wanted to, but I don't I don't think I can. I can give the replicants a a clean pass to be held up as the preferred uh sentient being, you know in the, in the universe. I can't I can't go quite that far, but I uh, am on board 100% with what you, what you guys are saying in terms of the the one of the film's main themes is to to make us take a good hard look at ourselves and if we're using replicants as cannon fodder You know, if we're then using minorities and low income people who who have no other choice but to join the military and become cannon fodder, like how different is that? And, you know, let's take a closer look at that. And I I think the film does that really well.
1: Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you, because there is I I think what we're presented with is just a bunch of gray uh, in the film in a lot of ways. And like you said, Alice, you know, there there kind of is this darker side to the replicants. And it's interesting because I I think that we instinctively, as human beings watching the movie, we kind of put our feelings on them, realizing they're fighting for their survival. And we kind of instinctively gravitate towards understanding that. And I thought it was kind of interesting because it almost felt like this weird, dark Garden of Eden type aspect to the film like where the replicants are coming home to find a way around their imposed death sentence because they only have what is it four years to live yeah and so in the way of like challenging the quote-unquote gods to give them more life And I just again, that's just fascinating because on the other side, I I thought it was, you know, humanity. Anytime we watch movies like this, I'm like, man, humanity makes awful gods (laughs) like we ourselves make awful people in like godhood status. Um, And it's no different here. Like we we become callous to what we've created and we treat them horribly. And I, I just, thought, I thought that was uh, such an interesting thing to to be watching because, like you said, Mike, like, and I love the reference to the Planet of the Apes new the new films because I absolutely agree with you with what they're able to do, where they put you on the side of the apes. They're here in this movie, like you can kind of understand where the replicants are coming from, but you can't. Like you're struggling, you can't fully side with anybody really in the film, and I love that there's that push and pull uh to the movie that it's more complex than like oh i just side with this person and you know like i think that's really great about this film
2: well like with uh a lot of great you know noir it's basically a world inhabited by you know terrible terrible people doing terrible terrible things and there aren't really any good guys or bad guys it's just a whole bunch of uh you know despicable guys or whatever you know so I mean so
1: you're saying it's a bunch of despicable me's I, I don't know if it's <laughs> 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 something,
2: something like that yeah but uh, you know I mean it's just like like what, what, what Alice was saying in terms of like them you know killing people and everything like that like I, I totally understand that but you know there is that flip side of like well they're really just fighting for their freedom you know so, so, at what point do you say that their actions are are justified? You know, and I, I mean, I don't think that there is an easy answer to that question. You know, well, it, it's because the, the movie doesn't really answer these questions; it asks them, which I think is you know one of the reasons why it's so effective because it, it gets the viewer to, to think about the answers instead of actually giving them to them. You know?
0: Yeah, well, it's the age-old one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Yeah. So it just depends on which, which side of the argument you're standing on. Mm-hmm. But I agree. I think that the film does a great job of making you think about it, which is, in my mind, what, what art is for. Uh, and gosh, I hope we don't start losing some of our awesome art institutions in this country.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, that's something that uh, I think you're absolutely right to call out. And I think this is one of those movies which is a classic example of show, don't tell. This movie uses everything to show you. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you how to feel. It doesn't tell you how to think about what's happening. It just gives it to you in glorious detail, uh, whether you know it's the design work, the camera work, the, the character interactions, the dialogue, the lack of dialogue. All of these things are working together to show us something without necessarily manipulating us to feel one way or the other because in many scenes you're pulled one way but then in, you find yourself maybe halfway through the scene being pulled the opposite direction and you're like i don't know what to think <laughs>
2: unless you're watching the theatrical cut in which case that's yeah, one of the big complaints is they literally do tell throughout the entire movie because they have that narration you know which was one of the three big things that they changed and um, it's
1: also one of the things that harrison ford hated
2: yeah i think everyone it. Like hated.
0: Yeah. Hated. well he also really hated that in the end uh the brilliant auteur decided to uh make him possibly be a replicant <laughs> he was not a fan of that either
2: although i've got to say i mean who knows what was in the script and who knows how much of it was just you know scott you know working off of you know whatever and not telling anyone what he was doing but it seems and, and cuz this is something which has always confused me like you know there's always the debate was he a replicant or was he not was he and i'm like you watch the the final cut or the director's cut or whatever and it's like he's very clearly a replicant i mean i don't know to me there's like no doubt that that's what they were trying to say right i don't know am i alone what are the key pieces
0: of storytelling or visual be a visual or through dialogue that tells you that
2: well, there's the eye thing, which is really, really subtle. You know, I don't know whether or not you want to count that. But the thing which, you know, to me really suggests it, which, to be fair, was cut out of the theatrical cut, was the, the unicorn dream, you know. And then, you know, you, you see that he has this dream, and then at the end of the movie, Edward James almost puts the, the origami unicorn in front of his door, and that, to me, suggests, you know, that, yes, he he is a replicant and... um. So my question
0: to you would be, why is that crystal clear?
2: I mean, I'm not saying that it would hold up in a court of law, but (laughs) I mean, in terms of like, you know, know, storytelling technique and everything like that, I, I feel like there was a clear reason why they had... Him have this dream, and then this guy, because ha- otherwise, it's like, why is that there? You know, it doesn't make any sense to have that thing at the end.
0: And see, for me, it doesn't make any sense the other way either. So does do, does that mean that Edward J. almost has, has read something about replicants, and that they always dream about unicorns? And so he, and how would he know that Harrison Ford had that dream unless Harrison Ford's unless Deckard had told him? Like uh, that doesn't that doesn't logically f- flow for me for me.
2: I think that, you know, there there it could be any of those explanations. You know, what I mean, but I mean I think it, it, the what what I take away from it is that Edward James almost has this knowledge whether it's about replicants in general or Deckard in specific, but he's got the knowledge and this you know, he's basically letting Deckard know about it in this in this unicorns
1: ruin everything
0: that's what we're saying (laughs) bad unicorns so so here's my question to you gentlemen which do you want it to be which works better for you in terms of the story do you want him to be a replicant or do you not or do you want him to be a human does him saving rachel in the end save a concept of humanity because he's human or do you want her to be a replicant and it's the underdogs get to escape from their evil overlords
2: I want it to be that he's a replicant, um, because I want it to show that there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of all this, and in the end it really doesn't matter whether you're created by man or created by, you know, biology, you know, you're still alive. and with those blurred lines like that, it really sort of gets you to to question what it means to be alive, you know, and and all those things. So I think it's a much stronger I think it's a much stronger story if he's a replicant. But I also I mean I guess I guess are you saying just like if I was in this world or whatever or or I I mean I guess that that's my answer. There there you go.
1: That's my (laughs) answer. (laughs) Um Well, this is hard because I feel like, obviously, 2049 is going to have to answer some questions if he is a replicant, because that means he must be a very special version of replicants that we hadn't seen before. Like, he's like the cream of the crop, you know, um, and maybe that's why he's such a good Blade Runner and he doesn't even know it. Uh, You know, I, I think that's interesting. I don't know whether I want him to be a replicant or a human at the end. I don't think it... I I feel like for me that it doesn't really matter in the sense of what it does for the character or anything. I, I think what is interesting is the idea of... And for me, maybe him being a replicant is a little bit more interesting because it shows that maybe they're the better humans in this point than we are. And that is a really good narrative device for science fiction, that our creation has surpassed us in our own humanity um, and its ability to maybe do what we generally think of as being the most human thing to do, which is be, you know, self-sacrificial towards somebody else, which he's kind of willing to be, which uh, again, I think is a really interesting idea. Um, The fact that we're having this debate in the first place is, I think, what makes the movie so brilliant that we can't come down on either side with all clarity and be like, oh, nope, it's this. And this is why it's the best, because I think either way, the door is open for some interesting storytelling perspectives and ideas, especially I mean. We're doing this in light of the fact that there is a sequel coming, and we know that Decker and Harrison Ford are in it. So whether they actually even answer the question there, who knows? But it, it, it puts us in an interesting place in history, for sure, because now we can actually have the discussion, and it's, it's a little bit more open-ended in the sense that like, um, we actually might get a full answer sometime soon. What about you, Alice?
0: I, I, it does not matter to me one way or the other, because I am 100% on board with um, Matt's uh, presentation of the idea that, you know, it's a world of gray. uh, And that's certainly the world that I live in today. It's the world I've always thought that I've lived in. And it's the world that I always believe that I will live in. Um, So it doesn't – what the film does in terms of asking questions and presenting really fascinating characters and uh, big, big ideas about the meaning of life and what it is to be human, it doesn't affect my uh, enjoyment of getting to examine those ideas through the film if he's one way or the other.
1: Alice lives in Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) You know, I've never watched that show. Uh, (laughs) um, No, I – I think what also makes this really interesting is something that we touched on a little bit, but I'd love to talk about it more with you guys because I feel like the visual direction of this entire movie is is so fascinating to me. Um, obviously, I've already mentioned the fact that I think that it spurs on something like uh, the writing of the Ghost in the Shell manga and, of course, both film adaptations that we've gotten there, um, you know, the, the ideas that flow for this movie, but... I mean, the visuals in this movie are so striking. And there's this like weird combination of east and west put together too. Uh, This dystopian universe has a very distinct flavor in there. And so I kind of wanted to ask you, because there's so much being told to us through the visual storytelling, what is it that you think that... He's trying to get across through what he's doing visually, where it's raining all the time. I mean, it's, it's dark. It's very oppressive. I mean, his apartment is one of the most claustrophobic places I think I've ever seen on film with just this weird, blocky architecture, really low ceilings. Everything just feels like it's closing in on you, I feel like, the whole time.
2: I think that he's, uh, you know, really kind of taking his cues from, you know, film noir and uh, a lot of the the production design which was involved in uh, those movies, you know, a lot of which took place in, you know, Los Angeles and and everything and, you know, had very, you know, kind of like sparse uh, sets but with like really harsh lighting and stuff like that and, you know, he's definitely, um, I think, drawing parallels between those two things but then also and that's probably why there's a lot of rain too, you know, but then also, um, you know, uh, updating that for how he thinks at least there's a a way that the world could change, you know, and sort of like globalization or whatever, you know, everyone, you know, sort of like coming together to form, you know, uh, a much more diverse, uh, you know, culture and everything. Uh, I mean, I think that that's, it's it's really cool. I mean, I agree that like the production design is amazing in this movie. And, you know, I mean, certainly I think the idea of creating that claustrophobia comes from, you know, sort of like what the character is going through and the idea that he's kind of like trapped in this society and that, you know, there is so much, um, sort of like overpopulation and everything that everyone is just kind of living on top of each other. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I think it. I think it. It works really, really well.
0: Yeah, I think it's amazing. Uh, I. I totally agree with you that so much of it feels like it's being pulled from from film noir, and certainly the the clothes. Uh, back that up in a lot of ways. But certainly, Rachel's clothes do. I do feel like he's fuzzied it a little bit, though, because it certainly doesn't have the, the the stark whites and blacks that uh, a lot of film noir does. It's it's definitely gotten fuzzy and sort of muted in those very rich blues. Um, I think in the in the presentation. Uh, but I absolutely agree with you that that had to have been the genesis from where he pulled a, a lot of his ideas visually from. I think the the costume and the set designers do such a fantastic job of pulling elements across time, but mixing them together in a way that really makes sense. So you've got things like Rachel's outfits that are so clearly 1940s, um, but then you've got like Tyrell's big puffy coat, and you've got sort of the ragtag look of the... Um, people on the streets that could be, you know, L.A. 1980s. Um, I just, I still marvel at, at how good of a job they, they did with the production design on that film. And again, it it still holds up to me. It's It doesn't feel old. Every time I watch it, it still
2: is good. Yeah, there, there's this company online that makes the ties that he wears. I've been wanting to get one for the longest time because it's super futuristic and everything, and yet... It's also incredibly stylish. Maybe it's—I was going to say it's timeless, but maybe it doesn't exist in any time. But it's—it's it's awesome. And should be noted that, the, that those costumes were designed by uh, Michael Kaplan, who you know would go on to design costumes for the uh, JJ verse Star Trek movies as well
1: as yeah. Force Awakens. Which I have to say, great costume designer. Uh, I mean, he's, he really he's, is. He is yeah. amazing.
0: So. The thing I want is those square glasses. He drinks his whiskey out of. Oh, Oh,
1: yes. What's funny is that Captain Sisko has one of those. Oh, he does? That's awesome. In Star Trek Deep Space Nine, specifically in the episode In a Pale Moonlight, Sisko is drinking out of a glass that looks just like that, which I was very excited to see. (laughs) I mean, I know probably the idea that they were going for
2: was like, oh, L.A., it's so dirty, it's so claustrophobic and overcrowded, and... Who would want to be here? And then in the theatrical version, they have the whole thing where they're out in the, the the shining, you know, land with the open country or whatever. But, I mean, as someone who's spent his entire life, you know, in Chicago, I'm just like, oh, man, I want to live there. I want to live in L.A. of 2019 <laughs> or whatever. That looks amazing.
1: What's, uh, what's fascinating to me, too, is the way in which, you know, I, I feel almost like the... The street level we get, it reminds me of the underworld of Coruscant that's, that uh, George Lucas does uh, in the Star Wars prequels. He'll do it in the Clone Wars. Um, and he seems to have pulled a lot of inspiration for that. Like, just that everything's pulling in on you. Like, and you, again, you have that claustrophobia feeling. And I think they do that really well. Um, and then uh, just the way that the story seems to be told of, that you have you know those in power kind of living on top of those that are poor you know like that they the, the society is literally being built on the backs of those that are you know less fortunate um I and think they that's do that's been that. true for a really yeah. long time <laughs> well no but i'm just saying that they do that really effectively in the 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 visual and the production design of the Understood. film. Yeah. I yeah, agree. they make that. I agree. Uh, and they do it without a way of, you know, like pulling you out and like and like kind of slapping you in the face with their message. Again, it's just one of those things that it's just a part of the storytelling and I think it's really well done. Um I, I the one thing that's very strange to me in the design work is the design of the Terrell Industries and it just seems so I, it's not, like, out of place, but wow, is it, like, the most strangely opulent, odd, ziggurat pyramid thing that I've ever seen. And it it just, like, it, it doesn't fit any preconception that I have about anything from the future. Uh, and it, it I don't know, I don't even know what to make of it, but I, all I know is that I find it really weird. Hmm. I like it.
2: I, I like it too. It's so strange.
1: I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's weird. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things though uh, that I was I was picking up as I'm watching the film is it really does kind of feel as though the the starkness and the coldness of the world that they live in is has been choking the humanity out of everyone because nobody really treats each other very well in this movie, like especially human to human. And I, I liked that all of the visual design, the architecture, everything about the film was kind of showing you how humanity's lost touch with itself. And it makes sense then why humanity is not really treating the replicants any different than they kind of treat everybody else. Like, this seems as though we have fully gone into consumeristic culture in every sense of the word, on every level. Like, everything is just a transaction. That's all people are to us. And other than that, what they can give to us, it doesn't. It, there, There's no feeling beyond that transactional nature. Um, and that, I, I, watching the movie, I was honestly like, oh, that scares me. Because, like, hmm, maybe 2019 in this version is not that far away.
0: Um, I don't, I can't say that I don't get some of that. I don't think I get that impression quite as strongly as you're relaying it right now. But um because uh, I'm honestly sort of running through my head because there isn't a ton of human to human interaction, right? It's mostly the replicants. I mean, there's Tyrell, there's, um why can't I, I almost called him JR, but that's not right. It's, um, uh.
2: Uh, the guy with the disease, the decrepitude, Larry. Oh yeah, the yeah with yeah. the brothers Daryl and Daryl. Yes, I mean? okay. yes, thank yeah. you. Yes, thank
0: you. There's the guy at the bar. There's the eyeball maker. I mean, there the humans really are sort of, especially if you're going to count Deckard as a replicant. You know, there aren't a ton of um, humans that get a whole bunch of screen time. Really, Uh, but I I totally understand what you're saying in terms of the way that the uh, world is depicted through the the visuals, you know, the street thugs, you know, sort of escape from New York, you know, sort of uh, that kind of uh, feeling that it's sort of thug nasty down on the street level where all the, you know, rich people are up above or off world. Really, that's where all the rich people are is off world. Um, So I I, I get, uh, I I can agree with you that it, it, it is projecting that on some level.
1: What do you guys think of the cast? You know, we you know, we've got Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Edward James Olmos, Daryl Hannah. I mean, some some big names especially from the 80s.
0: I can never say enough about Rick Howard in this movie. I love him so much in this movie. The uh, just the small things that he does with his face alone. <laughs> to me or enough to make me love him in this movie I adore I think this is my by far my favorite movie with Rutger Hauer in it like by miles and miles and miles
2: even more than Batman Begins (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah no I think the cast is really good too I mean Rutger Hauer is obviously a standout because I think in a lot of ways he has the most to do you know everyone else is kind of um subtle in their performances, I think, you know, uh, like Harrison Ford in particular, you know, it's, it's all in sort of like these little moments where he's by himself or whatever. And I think that everyone does a, does a really
1: good job for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was really, uh, I think I was struck, uh, by Harrison Ford, not being Harrison Ford in this movie. Uh, you know Harrison is is a, is a good actor but in many ways a lot of times he just kind of plays himself or a mm-hmm. version of himself and here i felt like he really was embodying this role of this person who was kind of losing touch with like the fact of maybe who he is and i just thought that was really good uh and and so you know, having been a fan of his for a long time, coming back to something like this where y- you don't uh, immediately just picture him in all the other roles he's done, like it, it. Oh, it's just another version of Hansel, Indiana Jones. You know, that's that's great. Um, and I do agree with you, uh, Alice. I think Rucker Hauer is just fantastic in this movie. He's so creepy. <laughs> like he's just absolutely one hundred percent creepy, and and he just goes for it in every sense of the word. And I think he he plays it to perfection that role. Um, and I love his interaction with Harrison Ford specifically. Uh, I think that them back and forth, especially those last few scenes, are just awesome. So, um, yeah, and I, you know, I it's interesting because. This this movie, in a lot of ways, I feel like... I don't know if you guys feel like this at all, so let me know if I'm way off. But it almost feels like a movie that isn't as much about characters. Everything is just kind of part of this big moving puzzle. And they all play their part so well, they just kind of meld into that puzzle and become one with it. And maybe that just means that they all did their jobs phenomenally and and it works out the way it's supposed to in the film. Um, But it is one of those movies where I'm not like, Decker doesn't come off the screen in a way that like makes me one of his, my favorite film characters, you know, like I don't come away with any of these characters specifically running into my Ryan, except for maybe Roy, who's just, you know, really whacked. I don't do do either of you feel that way at all, or am I just way off? I think, I think I would say the
2: opposite in a sense. I mean, it's not like I I look at the characters and say like, oh man, I love these characters. But I think this is a movie which is all about character where, like as opposed to plot. Like I think the plot is like very simple. And really what it does is it just sort of like creates these scenarios in which these characters can really sort of like reflect about their place in this world. And maybe the reason why the characters don't stand out is because in a lot of ways they're trying to figure out who they are themselves. And uh, because of that, it's more about like discovery than it is about, you know, sort of like these defined, these people with these defined attributes. So, I mean, while I agree that none of the characters really stand out to me as like my favorites in, in, in film or anything like that, I, really hook into like sort of their their personal journeys in terms of figuring out who they as characters are.
0: For me it might part of the problem might be because of when, when I saw it and because of my love affair with the film, but these are characters that I I have lived with, you know, since my high school years uh and and they've stood out enough for me anyway to uh, you know, that Roy, Roy Batty is an, an iconic character for me. I mean, I, and I think part of it is that tour de force performance that Ricker Howard gives Harrison Ford's character Deckard. Mm, I, I'm with you on that one, Matt. I mean, I don't root for him in this. I, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't root for him. I don't hate him. I don't, I, I hate him as an adult. now. I hate him a little bit more in terms of his romance with uh, Rachel. Cause Ooh, um, but some of the other characters I love, uh, Tyrell, I love, um, Pris. I mean, I, you know, these are characters that I I can quickly call up in my mind and remember scenes from and, uh, lines of dialogue that were written for them. Um, so I, I, for me, I do, I, I do have a, uh, a relationship with these characters but it might just be time you know what I mean I've had a lot of time yeah. with them no
1: I think that makes complete sense and uh, that's one of the the most interesting things about you know uh, seeing movies over time and, and in different times and when people you know see an older movie and how they all I mean I, I think that's fascinating to me because um, I've had that experience too where I love a movie and I show it to somebody and they're like eh I don't, get, you know, like they don't get it, or they don't respond to it the way I do, and it doesn't make sense. Um, it's kind of like how my wife loves the old teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, and I can't stand them because you know I didn't see them when they came out, and to me they look awful, and they're just really dumb and cheesy, and I don't get it. But she has the nostalgia factor that it helps her get past all that. So. um I, I was thinking uh, if there was anything else that we missed, um, and I know, Alice, that you had mentioned one of the things that you really enjoy about the movie is the music.
0: Yes. This is one of the um, A Clockwork Orange and uh, this Vangelis soundtrack were the first first two soundtracks I ever purchased in my life. I fell in love <laughs> with the soundtrack, uh, and me and my friends would listen to it all the time. All the time.
2: Yeah, it's a really cool i mean it, i i guess that that's sort of i don't know it's it's very very unique um but uh it it seemed to be something which was becoming more common in the time period but i think it it really does sort of blend that sort of like jazzy noir quality with something that sounds very very futuristic and it it works really really well now i want to listen to it again <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely both right. It, it's one of those things that does a great job of working perfectly for the film and creating and being part of the the whole process to bring you into this world, you know. Um, and yeah, I think it, it's very effective in the movie, uh, and and it works very well. You know, the '80s can have some awful soundtracks, uh, like. Lady Hawk, um, you know, uh, where it just really brings you out of the movie because it's so jarring. Uh, but this, I think, fits so well, like you said, Mike, it just kind of fitting this noirish, symphonic, strange weirdness. It all just flows together, and it, it really does work. So I think this is a a movie that all of the pieces of it Seem to fall into place so well that they create a hole. Which, um, it, it, it the more you start to think about it, I think the more you appreciate that hole. Um, and and there aren't, I, I don't know, there are very few films I feel like that are kind of like that in a lot of ways. Um, maybe I'm off again so. Uh, but it just it just feels like this is one of those kind of movies where everything kind of works together the exact way that it needs to to make something uniquely special in film that does stand out. So I guess I, I come down to, I mean, Alice, um, I think I know where you might go with this, uh, but if you're going to rate Blade Runner the final cut... Or any, just Blade Runner in general. If you're going to rate Blade Runner, uh, where do you fall? It is going to be a hundred out of a hundred Voight tests. Nice. Nice. And she passed them all, folks. <laughs> uh, what about you, Mike? Um,
2: I I guess I would give it... Um, see, whenever I have to do this where I have to come up with something clever to say, I always fail miserably. Um, I give it... Uh, 5 out of 5 uh owl
1: eye thingies. Oh. You know that's so awesome because I totally wanted one of those owls. I was like I could have an owl that could deliver owl post. <laughs> it could go. actually work, <laughs> you know? It'd be, awesome. be great. I want one of these things. Um you know uh, I was I was talking to um John Mills about this. Uh, and he got all up in my business because um, the last time I saw this movie and, and when I had put it on um, Letterboxd, the rating I had given it was three and a half stars. And he was just all up in my business about that, you know, that's just ridiculous. And and so, but um, I had just put that I'd watched it and it just came up with the rating that I'd had before. And I hadn't gone back in and re-rated the film. Uh, to what I had experienced rewatching it. And I really did. I, I had a much more interesting experience watching this again. And this is one of those movies where it's, for me, it will never be my favorite movie, but it's one of those really important pieces of cinema, I think, that's uh, worth watching uh, and worth spending time with. And it's worth thinking about deeply because, you know, we talked about some of the things that happened in this movie. Thematically, but there's so much more you could dive into, uh, and that's what I love is you can just keep peeling back the layers. And so, uh, I think that I will give this four out of five replicant eyeballs. So, yeah. oh, the things
0: i've seen with your eyeballs matt yes
1: absolutely uh no this is great and i'm I'm really excited to be here to talk about this with you guys next week as we jump into 2049 uh and see what uh ryan gosling and well harrison ford have for us next week so um before we uh get out of here um just want to thank our associate producers, uh, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. They make sure that the 602 Club comes to each and every week. Uh, they've been with me pretty much the whole way, and I just really want to say a huge thank you to them. They not only support this show, but they also support the entire network, and uh, you can do that too through Patreon. Um, This is a massive network. We have so much going on. We have five new shows going on now just for Discovery alone, Star Trek Discovery, and then everything else that we're doing. We can't do that without you. And we really do ask you, just go over to patreon.com slash trekfm if you like what we do. Be part of our team. Make sure it can come to you each and every week. Um, We've got ad-free, amazing content coming to you every day of the week, sometimes twice a day. Uh, And, again, we just ask for a little bit from you each month to make sure that can happen, and that's at patreon.com slash trekfm. Alice, if anybody would love to reminisce with you about Blade Runner or anything else, uh, where can they find you online? Well, certainly if they want to reminisce about Blade Runner, they need
0: to come over to the Babel Conference because that's where we'll all be discussing uh, Blade Runner uh, once you get this posted. Uh, If they want to reach out to me, they can find me uh, at my Twitter handle, Instagram, all of the social medias are ALCBKR. Uh, and I have been talking to my sister about the Hugo and Nebula award-winning novels, and uh, we hope to start putting those podcasts out online in the new year.
1: Awesome. That's going to be really cool. Let, make sure you keep us posted so we can let everybody know when those come out. Mike, before we get out of here, you are like just a podcaster about town. You've got so much happening right now. Uh, where should people find you?
2: Um, Well, you can find me uh, on my website, commentarytrackstars.com, doing commentary track stars, and you can also find me on uh, thenerdparty.com, doing a show called Great Shot Kid, and you can find me uh, right here on Trek FM, doing Stage 9, and another show, well, The Edge, that that we were talking about, uh, about Discovery, and and, and Alice, I need to talk to you about uh, getting you on at some point on that show, because... uh, oh. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, And um, that's it. Oh, Mumble, uh, Mumbles3K on Twitter. There you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I just I love bringing people together. Uh, just love the connections we're making here. Uh, Mike's all over this place, so make sure you're uh, <laughs> following him on Mumbles3K, and he'll let you know what you need to be following. You can find me here on the network uh, with Chris Jones doing uh, The Orb, where we talk about Deep Face 9. Uh, Thanks for sticking with us. Time zones and work make it very hard for us to get together, but we get them out as often as we can. Uh, You can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram under that same name. I am also on the Nerd Party Network with a guy that Mike and I know very well, John Mills, talking about Star Wars with aggressive negotiations. I'm on the Nerd Party Network talking Harry Potter with a woman that both Alice and I know very well, called Drea Kaufman, as we're walking through each and every chapter of Harry Potter on Owlpost. And then I have one more show, if you're still interested in what I have to do, and that's called Cinema Stories, and I do that with my friend Courtney, and we're talking all about film through the lens of faith. In fact, we just talked about Interstellar by Chris Nolan and uh, we actually uh, started the show off by giving our thoughts uh, from a couple of Star Trek fans on Discovery as well so make sure you check all of those out you can find those wherever you get your podcasts but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear